0: In July 2014, art historian and artist Barry Plummer focused on the life of Augustus John as part of a trilogy of community cafe talks exploring the gallery's collection and the complex relationship with war. Now, tonight, what I'm going to do is very, very quickly recap the early part of John's life because it's important if you've not looked at Augustus John before, you would need to know something about his early life. Basically, this is about his experiences as a war artist. So anyway, it's entitled, From the Sacred Mountain to the Gates of Hell. We're going to touch on a little bit of a saying by uh, John Ruskin. To be a great painter, you mustn't be pious, but rather a little wicked and entirely a man of the world. Now, it sort of sums up Augustus John pretty well. He was a little wicked, and he was entirely a man of the world. But his character is such that he's an extremely shy person, beneath that sort of persona that we get of him. This is what he said, he said himself, I'm, I'm just a legend, he once said, I'm not a real person at all. He, he managed to project himself in a certain way, same as a lot of contemporary artists do today. But his way he projected himself was through sort of bohemianism. But we will come to that again in a moment. Um, and to know Augustus John was to know a single man. He did, not, he did not know who he was. He was a chameleon. And he seemed to have this strange personality, giving be one thing one moment, another thing the next. Some facts about him here. Um, His father was Edwin John, who was a solicitor. He didn't get on with his father at all, and Gwen John assisted him at all. A very domineering man. He had to take over the family when um, the mother died, and uh, Gus was only six when his mother died. He was born in Tenby, but he should have been born in Haverford West. But the idea was to move him, the mother, to to, um, Tenby because of the outbreak of scarlet fever. The family were basically from Haverford West. Um, he attended the Slade School of Art in 1894 to 98, and he was like the star pupil. But a strange thing happened to him, which you might well have heard about, seeing on television programs. He had a bathing accident in 1897 when he dived off Bill Tower Rock in Tempe and banged his head. And apparently the story was, as he went in a stupor, he came up a genius. This thing of a bang on the head changed him completely. It was it was really quite a nasty accident. When you, when you read Michael Holroyd's account of it because he'd literally cut the top of his head right off, the flap right off. And uh, Gwen, Gwen was with him, and she had to get a towel and tie it around his head and get him back home. When he, but after that, that was in the summer, of course, in Tembe. And when he went back to the slave School of Bites, a very different artist, he became this sort of wild bohemian. We, we move on to his marriage. He married a girl from a slave student called Ida Nettleship, and her father was a parson. I mean, you can't think of a worse sort of person for him to marry in some ways because he, he was renowned womanizer. We all know that. Um, he was never faithful to any woman for any length of the time. Um, he wasn't faithful to Ida. Um, he married her in 1901. I've watched count the number of children he had. It's very difficult to follow. I mean, there's an apocryphal story that he had at least 100 children. I, I think it's nonsense. But he, had, he did have 20, about 25. But he, he, he married Ida, um, they had a couple of children together. She died in childbirth in Paris in 1907, um, and he was pretty, to be honest, he's rather callous about it when you read the story of that period. <coughs> he moved on from 1907. He moved. Um, he's always on the move. He was between London, Paris, south of France. He had he had a, a rented a villa in Provence, so he's always back and forth, totally on the move. Never very settled person. But in 1907 is when he, he started to make a bit of a name for himself. And it was a period where Picasso was becoming dominant, he knew Picasso, he knew Modi Galani. So he, he became a sort of blossoming artist at that point. But it's at that, that point, and just beyond that, when we get to the bit at the top, Iranic Far Mountain, that he became interested in gypsy culture. And he became involved with this man, Dr John Sampson. Uh, John Sampson was um, an Irish intellectual. He was a, um, I suppose you call him a linguist, really. He, he, was, uh, uh, he was a sort of chief librarian at Liverpool, but he also taught Liverpool University. But his great achievement was to, to record the dialects of the Gypsies of Wales. So he took a real serious study of these. He became a great friend of Sampson. And when a Sampson died he attended his funeral, he was a really bit distraught. Um, he's also, this is the, where it starts getting weird, and as we get into, his, his, into the war thing, um, he studied anarchism. Peter um, he, uh, he, he was, uh, these were certain clubs in London you could go to, Fitzrovia, and you know you could talk revolution, because revolution was sort of in the air in London in that period. So he, he studied this quite deeply. Literature, he was particularly fond of Whitlam, the Georgian poets, of Dostoevsky. So he was, he was quite a, a cultured person as well. After after Ida died, he married this woman, Dorothy MacNeil, always called a Dorelia. You, you might have seen him in any books on John. She comes up a lot of times. She became his mistress, but she had affairs with other people. Um, he had affairs with other people. It got very, very messy and very complicated. Um, Picasso was a big influence on him, like most artists that period, but only really the artists that went to Paris. This woman here, Lady Ottoline Morel, I'll show an image of her later on. English aristocrat and society hostess. Um, not the most flattering portraits, you might well have seen it. She, she became a sort of patron to him, she introduced him to a uh, wider circle of people, and of course he had an affair with Lady Othman Morell. Um, this man is very influential, an American collector called John Quinn, because in 1913 he managed to get um, Augustus John and into the, the famous Armory Show, the very first show of contemporary art in America. So Innes, the, the artist was hugely influential, and painted in North Wales and the south of France. These two things really clipped. Of course, um, Gwen, you all know that Gwen who's probably now more famous than Brother. She moved to France, of course, and died in, died in France. Um, she was Rodin's lover, who treated her pretty displicately, but she was actually besotted to this old man, and she became a recluse, as we you all know, with her cats. A marvelous artist. He always said that she would be more famous than him. This is a drawing he did of Ida Nettleship at that's his first wife at the Slade School of Art. And you can see the confidence. I mean he, he was a really good draftsman. And he could do these things quickly, nothing blamed about them, he could sort of knock them off. And there's another story that he used to do these things so quick. He used to throw them on the floor for the other students to pick up, you know. Like right. yeah. prophetic. <laughs> um, this is Dorelia in one of their gypsy encampments. Um, not looking too so happy. Apparently she didn't care for life too much. <laughs> um, they, they used to, not only in North Wales, would have these gypsy canons, but they would have them in Hampshire and other places. And uh, to really at Alderby Manor, this is the point where you get a more settled in Alderby Manor. This is in Hampshire. But it was a very strange sort of place. It was painted pink, quite garish place. And it was like an open house like a commune. People came and went. But um, this man, Gerald Brennan, who, who died in the 60s, a writer that knew Augustus John, he said, I saw in Augustus and Dorelia two of that rare sort of people suggested for ancient and primitive themes whose point lay rather in what they were than in what they said or did. So it's their projection, sort of humanism this sort of alternative lifestyle that attracted people to them. Now, just look at some of his Literary influences. He had a real affection for this man, Walt Whitman, 1819 to 1892. I mean, he's revered in America, Walt Whitman. He, he wrote a famous book of collected by Leaves of Grass, 1855. <laughs> and he also wrote this. And this is this is the sort of thing I sort find rather interesting with John. I won't go through the whole thing. He's talking about loving the earth and animals and his and riches and all these things. But it's sort of um, a... A way of looking at life in a non materialistic way, and he was very takeable with them. He always carried his work with him. If we think about the style of painting of that period, we won't go too much into this. Um, he was up against the old guard at the Royal Academy, basically. And this is George Clausen, and this is, of course, a friend, Augustus John, 1907. Well, that's a bit of a time yeah. but you can see the influence. This is a fisher boy, a fishing boy, and this is a stone picker. Um, I put, the, put these two together, because Clausen and John were the sort of adjudicators for 1926 Swansea I Stanford, And they, of course, they selected Edwin Waters for some of the prizes. So there's a sort of a local connection with those two. But what I was interested in, really, is, is this, this sort of betrayal of, of the working people. Because it's sort of slightly romanticized. It's sort of like something of like a Thomas Harney novel. And Clausen and John never got on. They were totally t- ends of the spectrum. He was sort of the more respectable end, and John was probably the more bohemian end. And the way of painting was totally different. And if you think that Clausen and many others, I mean, not just, not just John, but him, but many others, right the way through to the 1920s, were painting this ultra realistic style. And there was John in 1907, which is so unique. I mean, us today, you just think, oh, yes, right, it's okay, it's right? okay, if you, you've got to get into context, in 1907 there was no one in White was painted like this. No. So it, 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 it is quite revolutionary the way he painted, but of course strongly under the influence of Picasso. Despite all his um, business with anarchists and Walt Whitman and all the rest of it, he was not political, and nor was John, um, James Dixon in this, which I find slightly odd. There was, you read the memoirs, uh, especially Michael Holroyd's, which is, you know, He's Don the expert on uh, John. And Holroyd does not mention at all any of these troubles. The great unrest, 1910 to 1914, which not only beset South Wales, it set a lot of working people throughout the UK. I mean, we tend to forget um, what this country was like at that time for the working person, and also just after the First World War, when we come very close to a revolution in this country. All these things are slightly airbrushed, slightly airbrushed. It's not a thing we talk about too much. But in um, nineteen eleven, this is the period when John was now going back and forwards to North Wales, to Renfrew with uh, Edith, where they met up there, and painting these wonderful paintings. There was this railway strike in Cynfelin, and uh, I'm not sure. I think there was one or two people killed. It, I think there's a, 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 a platform in yes, on the Bridge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, another, another the troops open fire on So there's all this going on. 1910, I think in the Wanda Valley, there was um, some sort of big, big unrest at the time, Not, with miners, railway workers, steel workers, everybody, you know, the sort of working class, um, were disgruntled. No mention of it whatsoever. Also, this thing, which I thought was slightly ironic, um, this is a 1911 photograph about women's suffrage. But um, again, they don't seem to have any concept or Feeling of what was going on around them. They seem to be in sort of a, this sort of bubble of romanticism. I'm not saying it shouldn't be that way, but it just seems slightly odd. There is absolutely no mention, especially when they profess to be slightly political. And at the very same time, you've got Marionetti, the manifesto of futurism. We want to glorify war, the only cure for the world militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of the anarchists, the beautiful ideas that kill, and contempt for women. He was a this chap, even though he's a real fascist. And uh, that was a thinking which was quite prominent, really, amongst um, the more military-minded artists. I mean, we think of artists as being soft and cuddly, but not all of them are. Um, and this man certainly wasn't. Uh, he went on to um, inspire Mussolini. What I'm trying to say here is that there is a sort of two parallel worlds, or three or four parallel worlds. In one, On one hand, there's the idyllic world, of John and his painting in North Wales. And then in the cities, basically, you've got a lot of this sort of talk going on. And because, obviously, poverty does create um, opposite effects, doesn't it? You know, you get the right wing and the left wing. Very polarized. And this man, of course, is very, very right wing. He's a fascist. And they wanted to glorify war. The interesting thing is that a lot of these artists that fought this at this period before the, the First World War when they experienced it, they changed the view quite considerably. Um, David Bomberg was one, a Jewish artist from the East End of London. He said um, before he was slightly for it, he made, he made works which are connected with, with the war, but afterwards he just wanted to go back to nature and paint nature. It did had, had a polarising effect on people, but that was the sort of a climate at the time. Um, these are three of them that really went up to north Wales together with john innes and Derwent lees not so well known Derwent lees and uh william waffenstein that obviously he was connected with john in the course of a few enchanted years john innes and Lees painted a group of small pictures of singular beauty and it was like when we're talking about a few years we're talking about two perhaps three years at the most when they painted these rather lovely work. so the slide is rather poor but this is um one of uh, Augustus John's veranics. Uh, it's about thirty inches long, thirty-two inches long. It's a medium-sized painting. Now, the story was they they, they painted these things outside, in front of the well, cheaper, as They called it. I've got some doubts they actually did all this outside. Um, for a start off, that's rather large to paint outside. You could do it, but you know, you need a lot of time. Um, and I think Innes probably worked on the later on because they, they, they're so sort of mystical, some of his works. Anyway, we'll just touch on Innes for a few months um, because he's, he's tied in our story here. He was born in Klefney and he died in Sauny, Kent. He died of TB. Um, educated in Drekan, went to the Kalaman School of Art, State School of Art. And in 1907 he exited with the English, New English Club. And he became a member of the Camden Town Group in 1911. Now, this Camden Town Group, which you're probably aware, They were painting quite highly-coloured works. So I think, again, they're getting a few ideas from them. He met Matisse in 1908, and he didn't like his work whatsoever. Now, when you look at some of his uh, work, Innes, you see it echoes Matisse in it. Um, And because Matisse had that famous saying, that exactitude is not truth. And then uh, Innes, of course, went on a painting, so he revered Turner, and he went to all the sites, you know, Turner painting, 1908. Painted in Brecon and, and Carmarthenshire. And then he had this sort of almost fatal love affair with Ophemia Lann, who was um, one of John's ex-lovers. And she was known to be a good time girl, go, to be honest. And he, he sort of went overboard about it. What he did when she sort of dumped him, um, he got all these letters from her, and he buried them on the top of her early fire in a cairn. And apparently, in the Second World War, a bomber hit the, hit the cairn. <laughs> So you'd never better find all these letters now. But uh, the pattern is true. Um, and he was painting in North Wales, 1910 to 1913, Spain and Morocco. This man was uh, seriously ill. I mean, he, he knew he was probably going to die, because there was a death sentence in those days. And he would just spend days and days up in North Wales in all sorts of web painting, living rough out there. So that was the man working with John. I think, yeah, he was influenced by the foes, he's into the Cameron town group. Well, I, I think there's more going on with him. I think he, he really wanted to be sort of connected with these, with these mountains in a very deep, almost, and John said that almost in a religious way. And this man, German Lees, was joined in there. He was also a tutor of the slave. Um, lost, part, uh, lost part of his skirt said, uh, in the riding accent. Um, John called him the one legged philanderer. He was known for being a, another sort of ladies' man. He won all sorts of drawing prizes at Slade, and he uh, worked at Slade as a teacher. It kept him on the books until, until the end of the war. But actually, he, he, he died insane in, in Surrey. He was probably losing it about 1912, because John makes references to um, certain incidents with him, you know, where he wasn't actually normally. So he was a friend of theirs. He was very close, and he had this sort of ability to almost copy what they were doing. So sometimes you can't tell the difference in the work. Um, he traveled extensively He um, worked with them. He married an ex-model, uh, Lindra, in 1913, and had these terrible bouts of depression. He once, It's slightly funny, but he once attacked an art dealer with a wooden made. So um, <laughs> 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 this one is in the blue view This is one of Darlene's work. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with Innis, you might think it's Innis, to start with. Um, you know, there's little spots that he used, a sort of central mountain motif. Colouration is different. It's, it's, obviously, it's winter, so it's not so bright. So we've, we've got Innes, John, and Bill and working together for a few years, back and forth in London, Paris, Spain, all over the place. But in the end, this is where John gets a bit cynical He said he got fed up with this. He said, the company of a sick man gets on one's nerves at the end. So he sort of dumped his friends <laughs> to a certain extent. Now, we get to the, the actual war itself. But what I found so odd about John is that you know despite all this stuff about being a pacifist and reviewing uh, revering people like Walt Whitman and um, the anarchist tracks he used to read, when the war broke out, he couldn't wait to, to get in to, as he said, to stick bailets into the journals. You know, it was really weird the way he sort of changed. And then he then he said it's a very cynical thing. This is the cafe world, painted by William Organ, was there. And this is John there. He used to frequent this place quite regularly. It was, it was one of the genuine sort of Parisian-type cafes in London, where all the intellectuals used to go. And one of his first offenses was, this is going to be bad for arts. Not going to make any money, I suppose. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. But um, within the outbreak, war, well, he joined the Territory Army, Edward Wadsworth, another artist of the science Edward Wadsworth, along with Pastor John, nearly everybody else, is drilling in the courtyard of the Royal Academy in a regiment for home defense. Now, it's so hard to imagine it was just John, sort of drilling <laughs> in, in the court, you know, on the Royal Academy. You know, he's just un- unbelievable, really, you know, when you think of what he looked like. <laughs> he was a big tall man. He was over six, foot, well-built chap. And this is um, uh, what John said. He said, he said that the sight of these 15, 1,500 Territorials plodding in uh, Regent Street swelled John with pride. They looked damn fine, he said. He had these, he had this sort of... Further to get involved, with them. now he, he tried to join up at that point, and they rejected him. The, the story was, he said, his hearing is bad." I think they might be saying a story, but they, wouldn't, they certainly would not accepting that. Period. So he was on the sidelines. He got really frustrated that he couldn't get involved with all these people. So he carried on painting, and so he did some of his really nice paintings. This period, um, this one you might be familiar with. It's in Cardiff, uh, the Welsh poet. W. H. Davis, I think it's a really, really nice portrait of Davis, uh, 1916. Um, George Bernard Shaw. Now, he says a terrible things before me when he was back. <laughs> um, he said about Mrs. Shaw, she's a fat party with green eyes, <laughs> and George Bernard Shaw, a ridiculous painted object in knickerbockers. <laughs> but, uh, and then, then he would say something really complimentary about it. He see the swap, you know, one minute he'd say something nasty, and then he'd say something complimentary. And he said that he was, he was the greatest um, literary man of his age, you know. So you could be sure of, of what was happening. 19, 1916, um, he, painted, he painted him a few times. He couldn't get it white. I mean, his technique was really rapid. He said what they used to do is get a big palette, spread all the colors around, and mix a big puddle in the middle. And just slap it on. <laughs> That's what he did. And uh, you've got that sort of feel and there's a sort of a uh, spontaneity to his work. So, George Shaw was one of the people who painted that period, and of course, Lloyd George. Lloyd um, George and him just did not get on. They really disliked each other intensely. And you can see it in this in this portrait here. Lloyd um, George was renowned for having a short temper and uh, not sitting still, um, arguing all the time. And he argued with Augustus John constantly. He, he, he wouldn't even look at him in this, you know, he sort of turned away. Um, and so he had a terrible rapport with it. I know from studies of Edmund Waters, Walters painted Lloyd George and had a different rapport altogether because um Waters was a Welsh speaker and he told Lloyd George's wife before, what well, I do, I speak to him in Welsh that uh, calming down. And when he had a little break, he would read Welsh poetry too. Did he do cities or and then he sits still for about half an hour at the most. So um, it's, it's quite an interesting portrait, really. But uh, they just didn't get on. Anyway, um, we're getting through the middle of the war, and he's still not uh, got involved in any action, so to speak. And he'd been rejected, I think, a couple of times by the, the War Commission. They wouldn't, wouldn't take him. But along came this man, Max Aiken, the Canadian, Lord Beaverbrook, and famous saying the British public will not vote for a man who doesn't wear a hat. So Beaverbrook took over the Express, very wealthy man, a bit like um, the magnets that used to be in the, the world. Well. And he had seen John. He met John. He quite liked him. So he thought he <coughs> very influential. So he said to him, what I'll do, I'll see if I can get you a commission in the Canadian army as a war artist. And that's exactly what he did do. He, he managed to get him a commission. And he, he, he ended up Major John. He was, had to cut his hair, but he, didn't, he could keep his beard. And he apparently, he was the only person in the whole of the British or Canadian army that could keep their beards at that period, except for the king. And when he was, <laughs> <laughs> when he was in France, when they shipped him over to France, He's in this chauffeur driven car, and all these people jump jumping attention, and I think it was the king. <laughs> 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 he a drunk, drunk drunk as a rat, in the back of the car. <laughs> So he got him this commission, and uh, just at the point that the British army said they'd take him. But he said, oh, stuff you. He said, I'm, I'm going with the Canadians. So they give him something like 7000 a year. a lot of money. Uh, the idea was to be that he had to use a major piece of work that could go into some sort of museum after the war, a major piece of work. And we get to help it later on. But uh, so John has got this commission, and um, he's sent off to the Somme, the front line. Um, and he's full of this stuff about he wants to bayonet yeah. it Germans and rip their guts out and all this stuff. Um, I think he changed his mind a bit when he got to the front line and we saw the reality of it all. Um, he wasn't there very long, actually. Um, he was very short-lived on the, on the front line. But he, he was, in you know, some danger at some time. Um, this is, a, of course, an official war photograph of the song. I mean, he must have been absolute hell. It must have. To go from the sort of background that he had, you know, with this sort of rural ideal, and he was thrown into this maelstrom of madness, really. It was terrible, really. Um, and it, it was, it was um, financed through the Canadian War Artists Fund. Uh, they, they, between 1916 and 19, they hired 60 artists you know, of different nationalities uh, to produce pictures of sculptures depicting the Canadians' participation in the war. And over 800 works were produced. Now, John was very uh, dismissive of all the Canadian war artists. He said, they're no damn good at all. You know, I'm the only good one here. Uh, they're just useless in speaking. So um, though he didn't stay there long. <laughs> he, he, he was involved at that point on the, on the song, and he was supposed to take drawings um, to make this work of art later on. And this is some of the things he did. Um, he still, I, couldn't find, I don't know if anyone's found a photograph of him in, in uniform. Anybody said I can't find them at all. It was really interesting to see him in uniform. Um, but no, he didn't. He, he, he painted a lot of the ordinary soldiers. These are all Canadian soldiers that he met at the Somme, uh, 1918, towards the end of the war. And these are some of the artists that he was slightly uh, dismissive of. Um, it's a man called Richard Jack. who's was a well-known Canadian artist on Vimy Ridge, the same place that uh, he was. Um, what, what I've noticed with John is that, he, only, and he actually completed. I mean, completed one official piece of work for the Canadians. We'll look at it later on. All his works seemed to centre around the person rather than the action. I can't find anything to do with this except for the big painting that I'm going to But he was—he um, always seemed to be interested in people rather than the, the, the actual warfare. Though he professed he wanted to do the stuff of the Germans. Another one by another uh, artist from that period, Canadian. Ridge. of He didn't paint anything like this whatsoever. Um, and he said at the time, just as he was being taken into the, the Canadian Army, I was fish, a fish, flesh, fowl, or good red herring. It sort of ties in with what he, he felt as a person, that he was this strange little person that couldn't fit in anywhere, really. And he, he felt that he couldn't even fit in with this, though no, he professed he wanted to do this. Um, and if we look at the... The statistics of, of this, you know, the Somme. There's, there's fifty one thousand, hundred fifty thousand British soldiers died, um, together with sixty six thousand French and one hundred eighty thousand Germans. I mean, it's just that's just one place it, just one place. Um, but he did say this when he was there: to be caught up in events was exhilarating. Um, I don't know if some of these chaps are dead or whether they're asleep or not. It certainly started to colour his view of of warfare at that point. But he also met up with his man, Wyndham Lewis. Wyndham Lewis, um, of course was British, but he he he, was, he joined the same as John, he was he was a to the, the Canadians as well. And they used to go out together in the strofe-driven car looking for sites to paint. And uh, one day they nearly got blown to pieces. Shells shell was landed near them, and Wyndham Lewis got pretty frightened and in Apparently, he hot it back to, to London and never come back to the front again. And John was very scathing about it. He, he, he said to one of his friends, um, where's that war hero, Wyndham Lewis, coming?" <laughs> he said um, he, he, he couldn't frighten them with his Cubist paintings or something. He was very dismissive of Cubists as well. And this is called Wyndham Lewis in 1920. It's much well-known piece of work. It's in the National Portrait Gallery. So Wyndham Lewis, um, his state of mind at that time was very similar to. Um, Marinetti really, he was a futurist. He believed they believed in the power of cleansing and warfare. Um, I think the reality got to them. They changed their minds pretty rapidly. So uh, this is one of his works that he did. A large, large piece of work um, in the Imperial War Museum. Um, so in showing the, the part at the front, uh, his figures are sort of mechanicalistic kind of aren't they? Sort of not really human, the figures. The whole thing is sort of meant to be some sort of nightmare, I suppose, of uh, me- mechanical destruction. And the other one was Nevinson, another artist that um, was familiar with all all lot around this period. Um, troops returned into the trenches. And again, Nevinson for what the same really as Marinetti to a certain extent, not quite so extreme, and as Wyndon Lewis, that the war should be betrayed as this mechanical nightmare that people are just turned into machines. And of course, Paul Nash, uh, The Men in Rome. Very, very good artist, Paul Nash. And I think, probably of them all, I think he called it the best. Even though it's slightly colorful, there is something really powerful moving with Nash's work. And it just shows the desolation, and the the two figures, two soldiers moving through that landscape. And of course, Stanley Spencer. Stanley Spencer, of course, um, was an orderly to start with in Bristol, the hospital. And then he he moved to Sir he fought on the front there. He made this sort of big exhibition, wasn't it last year? it last year? The yeah, last year. Uh, Sandman Memorial Chapel in Hampshire, which is owned by the National Trust. And he worked on these images, sort of surreal images, um, for about six years, huge paintings. And this one's called Nap Reading. He was a marvelous artist, uh, Stanley Spencer. And what I like about him is here, sort of the ordinary that's made sort of surreal. Um, there's a chap there. On of the officers reading his maps, and either these people are dead or alive, no, sleeping. But the idea would be that they'd be resurrected eventually. Um, I just want to put uh, maybe offline my Marelle in, because uh, it's a pretty horrible image. It's not flattering, is it? You know, to be honest, isn't it? Um, it's a powerful image, huh? um, but this one is by uh, an artist called Anne Estelle Rice. knew she knew John. So did Catherine Mansfield. Um, the New Zealand writer. And Catherine Mansfield wrote to Morel, and she said she'd seen Augustus John in the Cappy World in his carcass. And uh, she said he was still as balmy as ever. She was not not very complimentary about him whatsoever. I don't know what Morel wrote back, but uh, they obviously kept tabs on what he was up to. Um, Just after the the war, of course, he started to paint some big names, like Lawrence of Arabia, in 1919, but before he was actually demoted from the Canadian Army officially in 1919, but he, his experiences on the front weren't for long, because he was there about three to four months. And he, typical John thing, he got he got drunk and he got in a fight with another officer, and he flattened the officer, and um, he was going to be court-martialed. And Beaverbrook intervened and saved him, really, because he didn't be face the court-martial in those days; he would be shot. I don't know. But they were shocked for the most things at that time, weren't they? So um, he sort of managed to keep the hat on it, and they got him out of the army. So his experiences weren't great, really. Um, he didn't cover himself in glory, but it didn't do him any harm, I suppose, socially. Um, he started then after the war to paint some of the most famous figures, like people like Thomas Hardy, uh, and of course Dylan Thomas. He painted about nineteen thirty-six, I think, seven. He knew Thomas. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure the truth of the story, but he, you like this, you've been in a fight with him as well. He did him long, wasn't he, I think? Yeah, over Catelyn, wasn't it? Uh, but he deteriorated, his work deteriorated, and uh, in 1945, this is the sort of thing he was doing. It was like he was sort of knocking out this work quickly, this sketchy work, couldn't be bothered to finish it. There's loads of these when you, when you really study these work. I mean, there's a sort of presence to it. It's not that bad, but there's something about it which is not the same. his his involvement, really, with Canadians after the war. Now, he was supposed to produce a huge piece of work for the Canadian War Museum. It didn't ever get finished very quickly in the moment. This is a man called Walter Olwood. I don't know too much about him, but I've been studying. was a very, very good architect and designer, really. He designed the Canadian War Memorial, which is in in France. And he designed all the figures for it. And so he was sort of connected with the idea of a, of a Canadian War Museum as well, which John was supposed to contribute to. This is the work. This is the one piece of finished work that he did. It's called Fraternity, um, which is in the Imperial War Museum. That's the only piece that he did for the whole war. um uh, I'm not quite sure what that's about. But it's, it looks like a very young soldier. You know, Injuries, look at his face, or, or whether he's upset, but there's a... Uh, that is the work, as it is debated in 1911. This is in Canada, in Ottawa, the, now the official war museum. What he wanted to do, he said that he wanted to make this thing. It's 40 foot long. It was to do with the, uh, the, the, the battle on Vimy Ridge. Um, but he wanted to sort of make it almost like a, a gypsy parade of soldiers. And again, there's not much there that shows a bit of destruction in the background, but again, it seems to be always about the people rather than sort of battle scenes and all the rest of it. It reminds me of some of the stuff he did. For, he did a big painting of Galway, and he used similar sort of figures in that. But the thing was never finished, and there was a great fuss over this. It was actually sold to a private collector, and then the Canadian government brought it back. If we look at the, uh, the Canadian losses during the, the First World War, uh, 60,000 died. For a total enrolment of 620,000 on, on the Western Front, one Canadian with seven reservers killed. Of these, 16,000 of no known grade. So that they lost about 10% of their troops out there, which is a pretty staggering number, really. But Beaverbrook still behind this project, he thought that it should be completed, and it wasn't. The bit that really sort really of interests me is the bit, and I haven't got some images of this, but the, the part where John comes out of the army, goes back to civilian life, and is like a changed person. There's I know he was a comedian, but he he got he'd gone from Bohemian to this sort of warmonger that wanted to kill all these Germans to someone quite different. He became like the, the Damien Hirst of his generation. He became a sort of celebrity. And I think it just ruined him. I think the talent that he had was dissipated after the after the, the, the First World War. Yeah he painted lots of stuff. Loads and loads of work, and he was very well known. He appeared, um, well, he's on television, well, such television, they were certainly on radio programmes. Uh, become a a well, very well known society artist, but really he, he lost it. And in 1923, on the occasion of Illness's The Moral exhibition, uh, John on Insight wrote, By the intensity of his vision, his, his passionately romantic outlook, his work will live when that of many happier and healthier men would have grown with the passing years cold and chill and lifeless. And uh, Eric Rowan, who, who um, wrote a very good catalog on Innes and John back in the 80s, uh, thought that John knew, at this point, that really it was over for him, artistically. He knew that Innes would outlive him, really. And he knew um, his, his sister would outlive him, in, in artistic terms. And that he really was a spent force, and whatever he did in the future was never going to match up to that intensity that he had back in, in that time. And he said, uh, he said soon after that period, just before memorial uh, extension, I want to dig myself up uh, and replant myself in some corner where no one will look for me. There, perhaps there, in fact, I shall be able to paint better. So he knew. That there was something wrong, that he couldn't capture what he would caught in in North Wales, and this is what Eric Rowan said. Although he worked on until his death in 1961, John reached his peak as a painter in the years and minutes before the First World War, and that's from that catalogue. And I think that's what we need to contemplate with him. That he was a most unusual artist. I think uh, we tend, to, I mean, he's tend to be sidelined you now because of his his sister. You know, she becomes such a dominant force. And she was a brilliant artist, and no doubt about it. But we have to keep it in proportion. In her lifetime, she only had one exhibition, Red uh, John. He was, a, he was a very good draft person. He was a very good painter when he was younger. He had a passionate interest in alternative ways of living, which sort of got blown away with the First World War. Um, and I think what Sir uh, Brennan said about him, you know, yeah. that it, it was an example that played a big part amongst many artists at that point, they of had a different vision, which makes them very, very unique. They were revolutionary, and I think we need to, to remember that. Thank you.